0: When I was seven, I waited with other kids in the afternoons to catch the bus because we had a new house away from my father and I had to catch the bus from my old school to my new house. The bus stop was in front of a pub, the commercial, with individual balconies above the street. Inside the pub, in a dark room on the first floor, my father stayed. And in the afternoons, he came out to his own balcony and waved to me or called me inside. Once, he let me have lemonade from the pub in a round glass with commercial hotel engraved on the side and a special paper umbrella. And in those afternoons, while I waited for the bus in front of the commercial hotel, if anyone came near me, if anyone spoke to me or asked me where I lived or called me names that I did not choose, I bit them. My father saw me bite a bigger boy, and he lifted me up in front of the other kids and stared down at my face, and he called me a little fury, and I puffed up and cried. After that, the big kids called me little fury, or sometimes little cannibal. Each time they said it, I bared my teeth and growled, warning them off. How oh, satisfying it was to drive my teeth against their flesh, to feel the resistance of muscle. I remember this, grinding my teeth as though I were a dog eating raw meat, biting harder and harder, in victory. To see a perfect curve of teeth, my brand, my warning. I was little, with long pigtails. But I wanted to leave the red imprint of my teeth. This is what I remember the pleasure of giving vent to my fury, the certainty that my wild, hungry anger would protect me. Pleasure in their shock that someone so little, so cute, so blonde could run at them with such rage, could long to draw blood, to eat them whole. Little cannibal, little fury how I gloried in those names, how I felt I'd earned them, how I felt they would save me.
1: Welcome to the Good Reading magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Catherine Hayman is a novelist, essayist and script writer. Catherine has taught creative writing at Oxford University and is the director of the Australian Writers Mentoring Program. Her first novel, The Breaking, was shortlisted for the Stacus Prize for the Scottish Writer of the Year Award, Her sixth and most recent novel, Storm and Grace, was published to critical acclaim in 2017. Today I'm talking with Catherine about her memoir, Fury. Catherine Heyman, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thank
0: you for having me.
1: Catherine, there's so much to talk about in this book, but it seems to me that to write a memoir like Fury, and to summon the emotional energy required, you might have to be in a particular frame of mind. But Is there ever a good time to write a memoir like this?
0: I also mentor new writers, and I think I would generally say to someone I was mentoring, you write the book that is pressing on you. You write the book that is ready to be born. So I wrote this book after more than 25 years because it was pressing on me. Now, clearly, one of the reasons it was pressing on me was because of what was happening socially what was happening in that time I started writing the book in early 2017 so it was actually before the Harvey Weinstein case all blew up but there'd been rumblings Trump was in power and there was this sense of of women feeling like okay we are done and in fact I had written above my computer a card which said enough and uh, that sense of okay it's enough now. It's time to speak. So for me, that was that was the propulsion, that sense of now it is time. It is time to stop being quiet. And also it it took me that long, to be honest, to make sense of the story, to make sense of the experiences, to make sense of why I had needed to do what I did. And it took me that long to acquire the craft skills to be able to write this book.
1: And, of course, at the core of this book is your experience of sexual assault as a young woman. But your focus is as much on the legal aftermath of that assault as much as on the perpetrator of the crime himself. Now, there doesn't seem to be much right about the system of justice that deals with this crime, but for the sake of clarity, what was wrong with the system of justice that you experienced at that time?
0: Oh, everything. Everything was wrong with the system of justice at that time. As it as it still is now often for young women, um, it's, it's distressing to see how little has changed. But I will be clear and say, this is not a book about a sexual assault trial. This is a book which is the story of a year in my life after a sexual assault trial, which was traumatic, which was devastating, which was belittling. and after that assault, I ran away from my life, effectively, and became a deckhand on a trawler in the Timor Sea, and that saved me. So I would say that from those blimsy, scrappy, let's say, devastating beginnings or endings in another version of the story, that that trial I I took those scraps and made something and that's what I wanted to write about that kind of what now what do we do when when patriarchy stands against us what do we do when we are faced with um what feels like an attack on our entire sex what do we do when 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 we are effectively faced with our own destruction. You know, that sense of we are being bombarded here. That was how it felt at the time, and that was how it felt in 2016, I think. So I wanted really to write about that, um, which doesn't quite answer your question about justice, partly because I find it so dispiriting how little has changed. I find it so dispiriting that we are having the same conversations. With this one exception, we are having those conversations and we are having them out loud. We are having them on podcasts. We are having them on festival stages. We are having them in public. And that feels like a significant progression. You know, I think we've got to hang on to whatever whatever we can, to be honest.
1: And, of course, speaking out about sexual assault is still a difficult task and comes with... Perils itself, doesn't
0: it? Oh, indeed it does. And again, it's um, it's startling that that these tropes are the same tropes um, in in the story of my own assault. I was absolutely shamed for being a party girl, for being not a good girl. I categorically was not a good girl. I make no claims to be, and I'm very clear that that. That I didn't have the requirements that one might need to be considered virtuous, to be considered worthy of good treatment. Because of course, here is my argument. Being human makes you worthy of good treatment. And I see the same tribes playing out right now. It's it's um it's revolting. It it's really horrendous. Again, with this, with the exception that there's a sense that because women are all starting to speak out, then, you know, the caterpillar model of change, that you have these cells, these, these, I don't know if you know what, I'm, what I mean there, but um, the, the way a caterpillar becomes a butterfly is that, you know, one cell changes and then kind of at the other end of the organism, another cell changes. They seem disconnected and eventually, poof, it becomes a butterfly. I'm totally not a biologist, so I'm just someone listening is going to go, yeah, that's not actually how it works, but just go with me for now. So I have a sense that this model of change, you know, women are starting to go, okay, enough, here's my story. That is the power of me too. Women putting their hands up and saying, yeah, not just you, not just you, actually. And when you have that happening, then you start to get momentum. Then you start to eventually... Remove the power of shame, which has tended to be the great blanket of silence over sexual assault and over sexual crimes, the shame being put on the victim rather than the perpetrator. Now we're putting it back where it belongs, on the perpetrator.
1: And part of your, or I suppose, physical response to uh, not just the experience of sexual assault but also to your what seems to be a rather traumatic childhood and and young adulthood, was uh, this idea, a state of blindness. I think you say blindness is a natural response to trauma. What do you mean by that? What was that experience for you?
0: Well, what I was talking about in that particular episode was an episode of what used to be called hysterical blindness. Um, And it isn't now. Now it's called a conversion disorder. So after a, a motorbike crash I'd, I'd kind of set off with my backpack on my back full of books and heavy uh, hardback journals, you know, the most ill-equipped backpacker um, like, ever probably. And I was on the back of a motorbike and we had um, a, we, we crashed. And on after that crash I was in the hospital and I couldn't see. I, I went to stand up. I, I couldn't walk. I went to stand up. Um, out of my wheelchair and I went blind as suddenly as that as suddenly as that sentence. So in that it was less than a week of being physically blind but of course what that forced upon me was a reflection on my own psychological blindness and what I might do with that um, what 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 I might, do to change effectively the story I was in so I felt very strongly that I was in a story I didn't want to be in and the one thing I did have was a lifetime of reading so that blindness I guess that was a kind of forced retreat almost You yeah, know, I was in hospital for five days unable to see so all I could do really was lie there and think lie there and reflect and even at twenty. I was such a deep breather. So that was my kind of resource. That was the thing that I could come back to and go, okay, how can I be Don Quixote? How can I change? I'm not having this anymore. As you say, it wasn't. It was a traumatic childhood. It was a chaotic childhood and it was a neglectful, effectively, adolescence. So the person who was going to rescue me was me.
1: From that state of blindness, you made some big decision at that time.
0: I did. I did in that in that moment. I mean, of course, it sounds you know magical and, um, and and fairy taleish, and of course, it doesn't happen in just that five days. But in that five days, that was the moment that I just had a really profound sense of I, of sheer determination, I guess, sheer guts, um, a, a sense of I don't have resources but I am going to take whatever I've got and I am sure going to find some resources and call on whatever I have to make a different life. And all I knew to do, all I knew to do, and it was just blind instinct, again, that word blind, rightly or wrongly, was to get as far away from where I was as possible.
1: In order to do that, you had to take further risks, uh, sticking your finger out on the side of the road.
0: Like an animal just wanting to get away from the source of its pain. I had that kind of visceral, unintellectual, just a blind, instinctive, I have to get away. Now, I had no money. I was not of the life that, um, that other young people might be, where they can go, I need to get away. You know what, I'm going to take a gap year. I'm going to take myself off to Indonesia. I wasn't in that life. I had a backpack full of books and journals. That was it. It's not an exaggeration. So my, you know, hitchhiking was how I was going to get far away. But you're right. It was, as a, I, I am a parent. The idea of my daughter setting off hitchhiking, I don't think so. I was running at that danger. But as I say in the book, I had not been safe regardless of what choices I had made. I was not safe in a taxi. I was not safe walking down a suburban street. So why not hitchhike? Now, as it turned out, and again, this is not a recommendation for young women to go off hitchhiking. I recommend no. Um, But as it turned out, in that potentially very dangerous scenario, I was safer than I had been. I didn't have a sense of protecting myself. That's true. But, but I had, I did have will. I did have determination. And I did have a kind of courage. So getting on a, on a trawler and heading off into the Timor Sea with four men who were all strangers, again, you would think that that is where I would be most in danger. That is where I would be most at risk. And I was not in, da- I was in danger on that trawler. I was very in danger. Many times I thought I was going to die, but not because of the men, not because of anything they did, because of storms, because of the natural world. But those men, I was not their prey. We were there to work. So again, it's that reflection of it, it has nothing to do effectively with the choices that I made or did not make. You know, they didn't attack me, not because I wasn't drunk, not because I wasn't wearing skimpy clothes. I frequently was wearing skimpy clothes because it was hot on the trawler, but because they were not rapists.
1: You make a a number of references in your book to Jack Kerouac's On the Road, and and you take a cue from Kerouac's experience, but you say, uh, and excuse my language, but it's yours, fuck being on the road. A cipher or a muse for a boy's own adventure, I was on the sea, as alive as I could ever hope to be. Why and how did your view of Kerouac change?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, that's kind of, and the language is forgiven. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: terrible. Goodness me. Wash your mouth out. I,
0: as a young woman and as a high school student, the 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 books that we read the books that we were given and even you know the books that were kind of they, for every generation i think of young people there's a book that gets we press into each other's hands for my generation that was books like um the unbearable likeness of being Volk had at that same era acquired a um, a new currency, a resurgence, if you like, as had on the road. Oh, they were all big boys' own adventures, but I swallowed them because I wanted to be considered intellectually equal. I wanted to be on that playing field, even without the resources, even without the education. I just did think, screw you, I'm, I'm going to stand here um, battling wits at least. So that was why I swallowed those books. And it was only when I set off on that journey and really when I got onto that trawler that I was able to go, it's not my story. It's not placed in these stories. The women in these stories are invisible. They are ciphers, as I said, for this kind of imaginary standing for womanhood whose duty effectively is to serve as either muse or receptacle for man's dreams and uh, and I'm done with that
1: the result of of all of this is you deciding to rewrite the story of your life uh, and arresting control of your life where does the power to make that decision come from and if you are arresting control who from
0: such a good question you know much of my thinking on this of course is after two decades two plus decades you know so I'm, I'm reflecting on it with that um, position where I'm reflecting uh, with the benefit of, of distance, as it were. But I would say the thing that I have always had is the gift of imagination, the skill, if you like, of imagination. So, you know, and I use that as a novelist. But uh, that skill of imagination is something that we can also use to imagine up a different future. And that was what I was drawing on. I was drawing then on this sense of maybe that thing that I've been told, maybe that problem that I've had, you know, in school, etc., of being dreamy, maybe that's actually my superpower. Maybe I can call on that and just imagine something different. And by imagining it, make it possible that I can then make it. So that's, I know that sounds super woo woo, super witchy, but I think that is what I was doing. And I mean, I have, um, I still have the big, heavy, hardback journals that I took with me. And much of them, you know, there are a lot of pages which are horribly um, excruciating, you know, me trying to be a poet, me trying to be Kerouac, terribly pretentious, prose, self-conscious. But then there are other pages where I'm trying to imagine something different, um, where I get a little more real with myself. So I was using those skills, if you like, born from nothing other than Years of reading, years of reading stories. Um, Who was I resting control from? You know, that's, again, such a good question because I suspect, I mean, my immediate answer is I was taking control over a story that I had received, a story that was given to me. And it was given to me by my family, by my acquaintances, by my circle, by my culture, by the men who surrounded me, um, by the media. That story was kind of coming at me from everywhere. So there wasn't a big, bad, um, you know, Mr. Evil Leatherpants, head of the corporation of Crush Catherine, Inc., which you know, in, again, in story terms, I would say to someone, "Well, you've got to find you've got to find the person who's standing against you." But I think it was about that taking a story that that was given to me and choosing to create a different story.
1: At the beginning of this interview, we talked about the frame of mind required to write this book, but what about the frame of mind after writing this book?
0: Yeah, I mean it was so interesting. As I wrote theory, I I did not feel vulnerable, I did not feel exposed, I did not feel shame. I felt immensely powerful, honestly, in the writing of it. And I felt incredibly clear, clearer than I felt writing any book or play or anything in my life. I felt um. Uh, I think Brie Lee refers to, to, to it as white hot. And that is how I felt. It just was like a kind of clear, sharp whoosh of focus. And when I came back to read it, to edit it, then I had those moments of thinking, Oh, wow. Okay. This is a lot. You know, I think I had, I guess then I was able to stand really in tender compression or my younger self, I couldn't really allow that state to be there in the writing. I had to just feel clear and sharp and also in the skin of that younger self as I was writing and simultaneously in the skin of my older, clearer self. So, you know, the younger self who had that kind of, yeah, come on, give, come and come get a piece of me if you think you're hard enough, you know, that saved me, like a cocky little impossible you know, (laughs) self. So coming back and reading that self, um, then I was able to go, you know, bless you, actually. Um, And now it feels like an integration. After that story, after I stepped off that boat, I really did feel myself to be transformed. And I always spoke of myself before and after my time in the gulf as a different self. I kind of cut that self off. In the book, I'm, I refer to myself as Casey because that was my name. That was my nickname. It was my family name. It's what people called me. Afterwards, I burnt that, that name. There are one or two people in my family, thank goodness, who still call me that. But everyone else, people who knew me, they were not allowed to call me that. So there really was like this burning Of the self I had been. I would say maybe even a little violently. So writing this book and coming back to it to read it and I um, read the audiobook myself and so re-encountering it in that way felt like a really lovely integration. My older self who kind of saving the younger self and the younger self saving the older self.
1: Catherine Heyman, Thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Greg.
1: I've been talking to Catherine Hayman about her book, Fury. It's published by Alan and Unwin and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.